Our scripture today comes from Psalm 73, which is one of my favorite psalms. It is a wisdom psalm, and one of its important messages is the importance of public worship. And all of life is supposed to be worship, I know, uh, but there is something truly special about gathering together like we are today, isn't it? Uh, the, it was set aside in creation. Uh, God himself rested on the seventh day. And we're to continue to do that. And there's something special about the worship, whether it's the spirits going up together, whether it's the friend, Christian friends that you have, brothers and sisters, whether God gives his spirit in a special way, I don't know. But it's very important that we gather here today to worship corporately. And this psalm teaches us that. So Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in him, in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall in ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell all your works. The word of the Lord. Lord, we would pray that you would give us attentive hearts, soft hearts, open hearts. 
hearts with a desire to learn what you teach us today and a desire to take that to others for your glory. Lord, we would pray that you would be with Pastor Andrew, that your Holy Spirit would indwell him, and with the soft hearts that you give us, his words may enter those hearts. Change us for the better. Change us to be more Christian. Change us to be more like little Christ, so that when we go through the world, others may see Jesus in us. To your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. Well, welcome on this Labor Day weekend. It's good to be together and open God's Word. We're going to be dwelling in Psalm 73. Brian said it's one of his favorite psalms. It's, it's one of mine as well, which is one of the reasons why I chose it for this week. We're in between uh, two series. We ended our time in Exodus last week. We're going to be starting in Romans, Romans 6 to 8, next uh, week, and we'll be looking at that through the fall. More on that as we go next week. But today I wanted to come to Psalm 73. It's a psalm that has captured my heart and uh, I'd love to share some of that with you. But I also think from a pastoral perspective, it's a psalm that speaks to us today in the here and now in a very real way. And by us, I mean the culture as a whole, particularly the Western culture in which we exist in, uh, and also the church, uh, God's people, as we seek to follow God in what can be very challenging times. Uh, we often, I often, feel like a funambulist. Anybody? Tightrope walker. Uh, they, they ply their trade, you know, high above uh, the, the ground, anywhere from hundreds to thousands of feet, places like walking across the Sine River, Times Square, or between the Twin Towers when they existed. Uh, but a place that's very precarious, where one little misstep can lead you to death. And uh, certainly some folks have fallen in that particular place. And that's exactly where Asaph, uh, this temple leader, praiser of God, finds himself. He's, my foot, it, it almost slipped. I, I was stumbling. I, I was looking around for something to hold on to in the midst of the culture in which I live. But it was difficult. I was like faith on a high wire trying to follow God, trying to make sure that my foot had not slipped. And so I want to walk us through this psalm and see if we can understand it. First of all, of course, we need to understand the cultural background, but then we can make some application to our time today. Uh, And my prayer is at the end, uh, you may love this psalm uh, as much as the Lord has brought me to love this psalm over the years. Asaph lives in a time of cultural noise. You see it largely, verses 4 to 9 here in the psalm, 4 to really 12, it keeps going down, uh, 13. There are several things that we could look at in detail. I'm going to try to organize them or collate them for us a, a bit. The first is consumption. 
Uh, the, the old word for this is gluttony. It, we often think about gluttony just in terms of food, but gluttony speaks to any of our appetites, whether it be uh, sexual appetites or appetites for things. We, we just want more, 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 more. And certainly we see that here, verse 4, these wicked, the, the people that I'm living among, the people from whom I'm struggling, my foot had almost slipped, uh, they have no pangs to death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. I think that was a good thing back then. Uh, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. Verse 7, there is this idea of consumption, and consumption is something that Asaph is looking at, and he's saying this is appealing. This is, this is giving them status, giving them significance. It's giving them a sense of security. Certainly, we recognize that we live in an age in which that noise, you know, advertising, it's, it's absolutely astounding the amount of money that is spent in order to get us to buy certain things. It's also astounding and a little bit frightening how well it works. Uh, you know, I realize that in my own heart sometimes, uh, that, that they've spent this amount of money to make me want that chicken sandwich, and I want it. Uh, we, we are, we're, de, we're so desirous about these things. Part of it is, is that it leads to power or pride. So you see the gluttony, verses 4 and 7, but you also see this idea of power or pride coming through, particularly in verses 6 to 8. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. I mean, we, we understand this from our perspective. Clearly, this was something that was happening in Asaph's day. There were people in the culture that had the world's goods, and that gave them a platform to be able to exert their power, to exert their will over those who were less fortunate. Uh, that gave them a platform to, to stand higher than others and to look down on others. And we recognize, of course, that this is something that is not foreign to us today. We, we see these platforms. Some of it is a political platform. Some of it can be in terms of finances and economics. Some of it can be uh, just in terms of, you know, how we use our education and our words. Uh, it's interesting that the psalmist mentions scoffing and malice, uh, this idea of, you know, just deriding, holding somebody else's ideas uh, in derision. And, and how common that is for us outside the church. You see the major news networks going at it, you know, deriding one another, scoffing at the ideas that somebody holds. But it's not just out there, it's, it's in here. Uh, we, we look around and, and we see the same thing happening in the church. Ideas about worship or ideas about politics or ideas about theology. Uh, scoff and malice we are, are brought right into uh, that same place because pride. We, you know, we want stuff. We want the power that it brings us. And ultimately, we position ourselves not just above other people, but it's almost as if they position themselves above God. You see that there. There's a real irreverence for God. Uh, they set their mouths against the heavens, verse 9. 
And then so clearly in verse 11, they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? You know, I, I am so far elevated in my own being, the things I do, the things I say, all of that. I'm so far elevated that God, God can't even see me. God, God is irrelevant to how I live my life in the here and now. And this is the noise that was in Asaph's day. And this is surely uh, the noise that is in our day. And it hasn't done us any good. I mean, we, we are a fragmented culture because when we pursue these things as individuals, as a country, as political parties, as a church, when we pursue these things, uh, we are only separating ourselves from one another. We're separating ourselves from God. And this is not the vision, ultimately, that we're going to see that Asaph comes to. Think about just the level of despair that is in our country today. Sociologists are, are tracking now what they call deaths of despair. Uh, in our country, since uh, 1990, drug overdoses have skyrocketed over 500%. In, in mere 10 years or so, uh, suicide rate has gone up 21% in our culture. You know, as we grasp on to these values... They, they do just the opposite of what we think they are going to do for us. We, we think if we have the stuff, if we have the power, if we have uh, a position, security, all of these things that we're longing for, that we're going to be happy. But instead, it moves us in just the opposite direction. Unfortunately, it's not only out there, it, it's in the church as well. The, the church, for so many years... Uh, has pursued these same values. Recent book, Jake Meter, it's called In Search of the Common Good. He, he highlights this and he says this principle of pursuing the world's values holds true for American Christianity as well. You could look at the Catholic Church, which began to lust after mainstream respectability not long after World War II. They rallied to support a candidate for president, John F. Kennedy, who publicly acknowledged that he would not govern according to the teachings of the church. But such was the desire for mainstream acceptability among American Catholics that they found it easier to abandon the clear teachings of the church rather than to maintain fidelity to a dogma that was contra the principles of the world. The evangelicals don't get off the hook from 1970s onward. Evangelicals have been prone to the same, er same errors. At the bottom, the recent evangelical movement has been designed to do two things. First, to grow churches through innovative worship practice and uncritically adopting the cultural garb of suburban America. Because that's where the power is, that's where the status is, that's where the belonging is, at least so we thought. But secondly, they've also tried to secure political power through an alliance with the Republican Party, and that goes back as far as the 1980s. We are not immune to seeing these things and saying, this is what is going to bring us happiness. If we have wealth and stuff, if we have power, influence in our society in the way that the society defines influence, then we will be able 
to move forward. And the psalmist says that he too is attracted to that. It's a powerful attraction. This is the whole point, right? Verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant. I, you know, I, I see all this cultural noise, but it, it sounds good. It, it looks good. If, if I could get more of this or more of that, then we could establish our place. And even from a church perspective, we could establish our, our place. Verse 10, uh, he, says, he says, therefore, the people turn back to these folks and find no fault in them. I mean, there is a real seduction there. There's a, a story told about Thomas Aquinas who came to Rome uh, during his lifetime. And as he came up to Rome, the Pope met him. You know, Aquinas was the doctor of the church, and uh, he, he led him in. He was showing him all the finery of St. Peter's and uh, all of the, the different things. Look at all of this. Look at all that. There was an army standing ready to defend uh, the people of God. And the Pope looked at him and he said, well, we can no longer say, uh, silver and gold have I none. Uh, re referencing Acts chapter 3. But Aquinas stopped and very thoughtfully said to him, neither can we say, rise up, take up your bed, and walk. Aquinas recognized that the things that we pursue have meaning to our ability to speak into the culture. And if we are pursuing the same things as the culture, then we, then we we lose our ability as the church to speak a word of healing. We lose our ability as the people of God to speak that balm that is so desperately needed in this culture. But there's another way, and I find that illustrated uh, before we get back to the text here. In, in a story about Desmond Tutu in South Africa in 1981, Many of you are familiar with Bishop Tutu and uh, his prominence in the apartheid uh, conflict. But he was giving a, a funeral service for a, a, a friend of his, a civil rights attorney who was uh, wickedly macheted to death, just brutal, hacked to death by the secret police. And uh, in, his, in his funeral service, he talked about the need for justice in a society, he talked about the need for a righteous justice within a society. As he left the church, he noticed a, a mob of people, and, and the people were getting excited. And uh, in particular, there was a mob of, of young men who had found a man who they claimed to be an informer for the secret police, and they began to to beat him and bloody him, and they began to uh, seek to really do harm for him. They got this tire, and they put it around his neck, and they poured gasoline on this tire, and they were going to light it on fire. It was a practice that they call necklacing. But Tutu uh, burst through the crowd, and he came, and he prostrated himself across the man, putting his body in the way of those who would attack and beat this man. And he said, this is not the way. This is not the way that we move forward with the kind of justice and righteousness that we long for. There is another way, and it's a gospel way. And he's, his, his message had so much power as he stood there 
with the blood of the one being beaten on his cassock. And this is really what we're invited to as we see the transformation of Asaph going into the sanctuary. That's the pivot, right? Verse 17, uh, when I thought to understand this, verse 16, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Like Brian said at the beginning, there is something about the sanctuary of God uh, where God's presence comes among God's people in a special way, in a special time. It, it gives us the ability to see things that we wouldn't ordinarily see when we're out there in the noise of the culture. It's so difficult to miss what God holds before us uh, during times like this, when, when you have uh, a, a, uh, the Word brought forward, when you have the community gathered under the ministry of the Holy Spirit who's leading us to Christ. And that's exactly what the psalmist sees. He, he sees a vision. He sees the reality of Jesus in such a way. And, and he puts it so poignantly in verses 23 to 26. He says, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing that I desire. Nothing that I desire on earth beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forevermore. I don't know of a passage of Scripture that captures so clearly the orientation that the Christian is invited to. If you are a follower of Jesus, you're not invited to you know, so much religious activity. You're not invited to a life of moral uprightness. You're invited to a life of being consumed by this God. Whom have I in heaven but you? This is the God that Tutu so clearly gives us a picture of who gave his life for ours. He, he threw his body, the body of his only begotten son, into the fracas, and he became bloodied for our sake. And the psalmist recognizes this so clearly, and he says, there is nothing on earth. There is no wealth. There is nothing that I can consume. There is no power, be it political or social or relational. There is nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forevermore. Do you know Christ this way? This is the question that I, I, I keep coming back to in my own life because I find it so easy you know, to go off in so many directions. You know, when my relationships are, are difficult, I'm looking for worldly wisdom. Uh, when, when I feel like uh, my status is imperiled, 
you know, bigger church, you know, all of these types of things. You think pastors are immune to some of these things here? I, I think in some ways we're, we're the most at risk. You know, when we think about our security, we, we think about guns or we think about, uh, you know, a new security system in the home that is... But this is not the vision of the psalmist. The psalmist says, the only thing that I can see, the only thing that makes sense in my life is that I am, to use the words of John Donne, ravished by you. Batter my heart, Donne prays in his sonnet, O three-person God, that I, that I may see you, that you may enthrall me and being so enthralled that I might finally, finally be free. This is the vision that the psalmist sees, and, and this is the invitation that we all have to, to come under the loving lordship of the Lord Jesus as it's given expression here. And notice there are several outcomes to this. So that's the orientation. The orientation, you know, everything coming under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And it's, it's a loving lordship of the Lord Jesus because notice the, the psalmist, he, the psalmist has been doing a, a lot of judging in this, you know, he's judging the wicked. He's calling them out. Uh, he says he was embittered in his spirit. But when he comes into contact with the Lord and, and he has this reorientation take place for him, he says, he acknowledges it freely, uh, I was embittered in my heart. Verse 21, I was pricked. In my spirit, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, you hold me by my right hand. You see, this is true gospel humility. When we recognize that, that we have absolutely nothing to contribute that would allow God to love us. And we see ourselves for being brutish and ignorant. This is why we have confession in our service. Why it's such a grace. It's because we're, we're coming before God and we're saying, I'm bringing nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Nevertheless, you hold me by my right hand. Nevertheless, you continue to love me. I don't deserve it. And that is amplified in the community. One of the great things about this psalm is that this happens in the sanctuary. Now, we think about this. I, I don't know about you, but when I read this, I'm thinking about a person's individual experience. And he's writing about that to be sure. But the sanctuary was a very communal place. It's where God's people came together to worship God. And, and, and in community, the absolute beauty of God is magnified uh, time after time and again because I see in myself, but I also recognize that you guys fall short. I see it in my family and our relationships. I hurt them. They hurt me. We see it in our church. We hurt each other. We hurt each other with our pride, with our ignorance, with our arrogance, all of these different things. And yet, nevertheless... God is redeeming a, a group like us. Can you believe it? I mean, praise be to him. God is redeeming 
people such as us, in a minute we're going to come to the table and we're going to walk forward and receive that. And my prayer would be that every person that walks forward, you know, just the, the, the magnitude of God's grace would be uh, amplified in your heart. Uh, and there would be that true gospel humility which leads to a compassion. Now, the, the psalmist here is speaking about the end of what he's called the wicked. Uh, verse 17, then I discerned their end. Verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. I think there's a little compassion there because he's using the same word that he talked about his own experience. He was in a slippery place, but they've been in a slippery place as well. And he, he has some compassion for them. You make them fall to ruin. They're destroyed in a moment, swept away by terrors like a dream when one awakes. So, Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Uh, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, you know, I was a brutish and arrogant. He, we can read that and say there is a sort of a vengeance that the psalmist is taking, but I don't think that's the case. For one, he's saying... I understand myself better now. And when I understand myself better, I, I have no grounds to put myself above somebody else. I was in the exact same place where they are. They're in a slippery place. I was in a slippery place. Uh, but then secondly, look at verse 28 or verses 27 and 28. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to meet you. It's for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the Lord my refuge. That I may tell of your works. There is a desire here uh, for the psalmist to tell of the works of God to those who are in slippery places. That they may be saved. So there is not a hate. There is not a vengeance that is existing between the psalmist and the wicked at this point. There is a compassion. There is a love, the same kind of love that God had for us while we were still sinners. He sent His Son to die for us. Do you see the transformation that is taking place in Asaph? Do you see how God is changing uh, the orientation of his heart and his thought, and it's changing the orientation of his life. No more will arrogance do. No more will hatred and animosity and scoff and malice, these things won't do because God has truly given me a heart of compassion, of love for those who are apart from God. Augustine talks about this in his book, marvelous book, The City of God. He says there are two loves. The first is holy, the second foul. The first is social, the second selfish. The first consults the common welfare for the sake of the celestial society. The second grasps at selfish control of social affairs for the sake of arrogant domination. The first is submissive to God. The second tries to rival God. The first is quiet, the second restless. The first is friendly, the second envious. The first desires for its neighbor what it wishes for itself. The second desires to subjugate his neighbor. The first rules its neighbor for the good of its neighbor. The second 
for his own advantage. Augustine captures perfectly what's going on in the heart of the psalmist in Psalm 73. And if we're honest, at least I'll speak for myself, when I'm honest, Augustine captures perfectly what's going on in my own heart. How will God help us? How can we be the people that he's called us to be? How can we walk the tightrope? Tightrope walkers hold on to this giant pole, gives them balance. Seems sort of awkward to me, but it, apparently it helps. Uh, it gives them balance. Brothers and sisters, our pole is the Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified. As we come to this table, it's Christ's death, His resurrection, His ascension. It is everything that is brought up into us that is the ballast in the hull. It is the stability that we need. If we are grasping onto anything else, money, power, ideology, whatever it might be, it will turn to dust in our hands. It has no power, none to bring us forward. And it's not attractive. It's not attractive to the world. The only thing that has power and ultimately the only thing that is attractive is to come surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. Whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But the Lord is the strength of my heart and my portion forevermore. Lord, as we get ready to come to your table, we pray along with Dunn that you would batter our hearts. Lord, move us away from that brutishness, the beastishness that, that so clings to us. Reorient us to the glories that you have revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. May we desire a power that does not look at all like this world's. May we desire a security that doesn't come through might or through violence. May we cling so closely to you, our crucified, risen, and ascended Savior, for we know that you alone will hold us fast. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.